Hello, hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Witch Hunter podcast, now available via Podbean and the Stitcher Radio app. I am Domine de Groot, the author of this gothic fantasy adventure audiobook experience extravaganza, and I'm very pleased you've decided to continue the journey of the Witch Hunter with us. You may have noticed me mention something on social media about an announcement this episode, or you may not. In any case, here is the announcement. As of today, Witch Hunter, the entire dramatized audiobook, is available on cassette tape. Okay, not really on cassette tape, since that medium is a little bit outdated, but it's on a USB drive, cleverly disguised as a cassette tape. It's a really beautiful and charming-looking product that should bring warm, fuzzy feelings to anyone old enough to remember the age of the Walkman. Beside its cool look and the fact that you can get the entire 13-hour-long epic story in one go without intrusions, the Witch Hunter tape also includes, well, it's not a tape, it's a USB drive that looks like a tape, and it also includes a lot of extras. There are a number of desktop wallpapers and illustrations, a behind-the-story audio feature, yes, we did that, and even the updated, remastered version of Peter van Riet's glorious music score. All of it in the same package. The whole package costs 20 British pounds, which is the same as 26 euros, or 28 and a half US dollars, according to the latest exchange rates. It is available now on audiobooksontape.com. That's audiobooksontape.com. Don't miss it. In other news, yes, we are planning on releasing all of Witch Hunter in this podcast over the coming weeks with a weekly release schedule. Every Thursday we'll see the release of the next part of the story. Usually we'll divide it up per chapter, but, well, some chapters are a bit longer than others, so we might split them up into two episodes. Anyway, uh, I've been talking long enough. Here is chapter two of Witch Hunter. Concilium. It was a moody morning. An almost impenetrably thick mist still roamed the streets of the trade quarter, turning the only living being in the street into a grey silhouette. It was a little old lady with a bent back, making her way through the rubble. Around her neck was a frayed piece of rope with a large burlap sack attached to it. Here and there, she held still to rummage through the ashes, looking for something worthwhile to put in her oversized bag. The scent of burned wood was ubiquitous. It was quiet now. This was supposed to be a busy place, where streams of citizens slowly ambled along, and merchants prized their goods at the top of their lungs, but now it had been reduced 
to a ghost street. Once beautiful houses were blackened, shop signs lay broken and half-burned in the gutter that ran through the middle of the street, and here and there the charred remains of a dead animal could be found. The city guards had put out the fire everywhere, but of course their efforts had been predominantly focused on the government district, where richer and more important people lived than here. Most of the trade quarter was still relatively intact, but this particular street had been burned especially badly. In the gutter, the ashes from the fire had mingled with the water from the early morning rain, leaving trails of gleaming black slime. The old lady seemed unfazed by the destruction. Her tiny, beady eyes only rolled around searchingly. She bent over and let her wrinkled hand dig into a pile of the black sludge. She had found something. The object was so covered by the muddy ashes that it was unrecognizable until she wiped them off the thing, revealing the smiling face of a wooden doll. Dead, ever-happy eyes, devoid of a soul, looked at her. With a shrug, the old lady opened the sack and put the still dirty doll inside. She then continued her slow investigation of the street her head moving from side to side, searching like a hungry wolf. The uneasy silence broke. Despite her age, the lady's hearing was still intact, because she turned her head in the direction of the sound right away. When a tall human shape came pacing down the street, she quickly turned away in an attempt to remain inconspicuous. Her round little eyes widened when she saw the man who came by, The tall, broad-brimmed hat gave away what he was right away. She hoped the witch-hunter would ignore her and avoided any eye contact. To her relief, the man kept walking at a brisk pace past her, in the direction of the government district. Ludlov left the trade quarter and passed underneath the beautifully crafted archway that marked the beginning of the government district. Quickening his pace, he ignored the fire-damaged houses until he neared the grand marketplace, where the fire had not dared to come. It had been a long night for Ludlov. After the encounter with the gypsy girl, he had spent hours helping out the city guard. They had vanquished the inferno after all, but it had been a close call. The sun had risen when at last Ludlov had allowed himself to seek out the headquarters and rest his eyes for a few hours. He had awoken early and decided to look around in the city and take in the results of the fire. The clear, unforgiving light of morning made the destruction suddenly appear that much more real. At least the historical center remained untouched. Beyond the protective walls, the mighty cathedral towered far above the roofs of all the tallest houses. Half veiled by the mist, It was a truly enormous construction, probably the largest man-made structure in the known world, and as static as it was, it seemed to Ludlov like a living being. An ancient force emanated from that place, a power that any witch-hunter and any pious citizen of Seven Peaks would feel resonating in their bones. The goddess lived in that building, and her infinite willpower was like the slow and steady beat of a mighty giant's heart, keeping the city alive. 
Ludlov regarded one of the seven peaks surrounding the cathedral, its small glass tower chamber gleaming like a lantern, now faintly visible beyond the morning fog. One of the seven sacred stones rested there. The witch hunter crossed a small plaza and arrived at a cast iron gate. Beyond the black painted iron, a carefully maintained garden could be seen. The gate was open and Ludlov stepped through it confidently. A long lane led to a large opulent building with tall stained glass windows in a granite gable with niches in it, from which the carved likenesses of heroes and heroines from Evenemborg's past stood watching silently. On either side of the lane stood chronologically arranged statues of mayors from the city's long history. They all looked handsome and impressive. If these statues were indeed true to life, Mayor Grundheim's predecessors all must have been endowed with muscular arms and sharp masculine facial features. The current mayor's likeness would surely provide a comical contrast to the rest of them when it was added to the row. Grundheim was exceptionally thin and had a long, narrow nose. These features, combined with his curious little eyes, his long, thin neck and his bent back gave him the appearance of a vulture. This impression was completed by the silver fox fur mantle from which his head protruded. Grundheim liked to feel like a king in his city, which became obvious in the appearance of his living quarters. In reality, there was no actual king in Seven Peaks. The independent city was ruled by the mayor when it came to secular matters, while the cardinal served as the spiritual leader, supported by the Grand General of the Witch Hunter Order as his watchdog. Grundheim's position was in fact no more advanced than that of Ludlov's direct superior, Lady Hoskiv. The door to the house opened, and another witch-hunter came out, dressed in the bright crimson of the Inquisitio Internis. The man was in the process of putting on his gloves as he left the building, nodding curtly to the servant who was holding the door open for him. The Inquisitor had noticed Ludlov and went to meet him. Longish blonde hair emerged from beneath his witch-hunter hat, framing a surprisingly young face, half-hidden behind a thick monocle that made his right eye seem spectacularly large. Magister, Ludlov said, reluctant to use the official title of an inquisitor. He nodded a greeting and hoped to pass by, but the younger man wanted his attention. Master Ludlov, if you have a moment, please. Ludlov suppressed a sigh. I was actually on my way to the mayor, Magister Gorlivosk. Gorlivosk seemed to have missed Ludlov's reply because he immediately continued. You do understand that last night's tragedy will inevitably raise questions about the safety of the city and about the competence and goodwill of those responsible for it. Beyond any doubt, Ludlov said. It is as yet unclear what caused this fire, but we cannot exclude the possibility of malign intent. Including the possibility that a witch-hunter caused the fire, you mean, Ludlov completed with a meaningful look at Gorliwosk's uniform. The Inquisitio Internis was mostly preoccupied with treason within the Order, and occasionally within the Church, rather than dangers from without. It is but one of many scenarios, but one we cannot afford ourselves to ignore, as I am sure you understand. Gorliwosk spoke with an apologetic smile. 
Justice be done. Everything must be taken into account. Gorliwask nodded and smiled. Imagine, for example, that the arsonist was a member of the Inquisitio Internus. Anything's possible. With that, Ludlov wiped the smile from Gorliwask's face. We cannot afford to ignore any possibilities after all, can we? Ludlov nodded again and continued down the path to the mayor's mansion. He had already reached the door, still held open by the servant, when he heard Gorliwask's footsteps as he left the garden. Ludlov had to admit that he enjoyed some mild provocation of the Inquisitio Internus from time to time. He did not doubt the need for an internal watch within the Witch Hunter Order, but in practice, it had often turned out that the Inquisitio was more concerned with its own interests than with the actual responsibilities of the Witch Hunters. Besides, he considered lads like Gorliwask, who had achieved prestigious positions without years of experience, to be pompous and preposterous sorts on the whole. The servant was a balding man in his fifties, with unusually drooping cheeks and sad eyes that reminded Ludlov of an old dog. He escorted the witch-hunter to Grundheim's study, located upstairs. It was a room that exuded wealth, but felt small because there was so much in it. The walls were panelled with cherry wood, and there were three giant bookcases, a knight's armour, and a massive desk with a stuffed eagle on it. Master Felix, sir. Master Ludlov has arrived, the servant said. Like all witch-hunters, Ludlov had given up his first name upon entering the order. He was simply known as Ludlov of Seven Peaks. Excellent, excellent. Come in, Ludlov, Grundheim said with a sharp, bird-like voice, gesturing excitedly from behind the eagle. The welcoming gesture turned into a shooing one when he turned his eyes to the servant. The straight-cut hair that hung to just below his earlobes looked comical on him, an effect only heightened by his oversized fur mantle. Sit down, friend, Grundheim said, still gesturing with his thin, supple hand, this time for Ludlov to sit down on the leather-cushioned chair on his side of the desk. What do you wish to discuss? the mayor asked, folding his fingers and resting his chin on them, looking genuinely interested in anything Ludlov had to say. The enemy has struck, the witch-hunter said. Grundheim scoffed. (laughs) I knew you witch-hunters would find a scapegoat for the fire. I am not interested in scapegoats, sir, Ludlov said so sternly it bordered on disrespect. Only the truth. Eh? Grundheim exclaimed, his voice sounding even more like some large bird than usual. Then who is this enemy whose existence is so obvious to you? Ludlov tried to keep his face stern and neutral, but it was difficult not to express too much emotion when he mentioned the name. The Black Sickle. Grundheim sighed, as Ludlov had feared. Of course. Why am I not surprised, Ludlov? I know what this is about. He looked at the witch-hunter with the kind of weary patience one might expect from a frustrated teacher, explaining the same simple matter for the umpteenth time to a particularly slow pupil. It irked Ludlov, who knew well enough that his personal mission was rarely met with any serious recognition from his superiors. People like Grundheim had few reasons to worry about rumours surrounding magical cults like the Black Sickle, which didn't form any immediate threat to their worldly positions. This did not change the simple fact that such organisations were evil and dangerous, of course. 
It's about justice, sir, Ludlow said, but the mayor shook his head. No, Ludlow, it's not. It's about your personal need for some kind of satisfaction, some measure of revenge for the death of your wife. Ludlow couldn't keep his face from hardening, giving away the truth in the mayor's words. That man had an uncanny knack for harsh but well-reasoned criticism. Ludlow decided to ignore the remark. He was not here to discuss his motivations, but to bring news. The hardness disappeared from his face. I have tragic news to report, sir. There's no need to change the subject, Ludlow. You know I'm right. Ludlow decided to go straight to the heart of the matter. I received a warning about the Great Fire. It came in the form of an anonymous note. It said, Tomorrow, after the sun has set, the witch hunter known as Adomir will perish in his own flames. I was abroad at that time, but I immediately rode to Seven Peaks as soon as I read it. Upon my arrival, the city was already burning. I hastened to Adomir's house and encountered a cultist there. He had locked Adomir in his study while the house was burning. I tried to save Adomir, but, but I was too late. He had told the story as dryly as possible, leaving out any of the tumultuous dangers and emotions he had experienced that night. But throughout, the mayor had looked at him with an expression that went from mild interest to deep shock. Do you mean to say that Lord Adomir is dead? Ludlow remained silent, but the mayor understood. This is, this is terrible news, Ludlow. Terrible news. I know the witch hunters have many enemies in magical societies, but... Ludlow took the crumpled note out of his breast pocket and handed it over to the mayor. Do you see the mark? Mayor Grundheim accepted the note and studied the content. His eyes widened and then turned to Ludlow. It's the symbol of... Ludlow nodded confidently. And did I mention that the cult member mentioned the black sickle by name as well? Grundheim was silent. He would have to admit Ludlow was right in this occasion. It doesn't get much clearer, does it, sir? Ludlow added. And yes, you are right. I do care about personal satisfaction. But I also speak the truth. Don't tell me you believe the great fire itself was entirely unrelated to all of this. The mayor didn't answer, but only seemed to be studying Ludlow's face. The black sickle are the arsonists, Ludlow concluded and waited for a response. Very well, Ludlow, I'll bite. Now what do you wish to accomplish with this accusation? The mayor clearly didn't want to be intimidated or swayed by the witch hunter, but Ludlow knew his argumentation was so powerful that Grundheim could only take his words seriously. He would have grinned if the terrible thought of his mentor's death hadn't suddenly invaded his mind again. The Black Sickle enjoys attaching its name to all manner of vile deeds, because all that name represents at the moment is a faceless threat. But there is a greater plan, and no doubt an evil brain behind all this, and I want to root it out. I want to get inside, like a parasite enters a host and destroys it from within. In that way, I want to enter the Black Sickle and destroy the cult. Whether it had been due to the comparison or the plan itself was unclear, but Grundheim turned up his nose in disgust. Inside the Black Sickle? Ludlow nodded. 
It's the only way I can think of to destroy them. As the mayor pondered this plan, a new idea suddenly came to Ludlove. Perhaps you can help me, sir. Oh? Yes. Do you happen to have any magical trespassers in your custody? Grundheim shook his head. The jails are full of bandits and murderers, Ludlove, not magicians. This was disappointing to Ludlove. The lack of an informant didn't only mean that it was decidedly difficult to find out anything about the Blacksicles' plan, but Ludlove also knew how proactive the witch hunter order was. Every day, a witch hunter was sent out somewhere in Seven Peaks to investigate users of magic. If there were no magicians in the jails, that meant they were all in the headquarters' torture chambers, or reduced to charred bones and ashes. This again confirmed what Ludlove had known for quite some time, that the reckless and murderous practices of hunters like Varthek had gradually turned from rare extremities into standard procedure. That was not only inhumane, it was also short-sighted, since it kept the Order from finding out important information about their enemies. Well, there is one, the mayor suddenly said with a shrug. Good enough for Ludlove. Can you tell me anything about the spellcaster? What's his name? Where did you find him? The mayor smiled. Her, you mean? She's only a young girl, but it seems she's surprisingly gifted. Her name is Samina. She was arrested on the basis of De Venificorum Poenis 35. Ludlove frowned. DVP 35 was a law about the proven use of magic. More precisely, illegal magical healing. He suspected very strongly that this was the girl he had rid of Varthek. Healing, he asked. Yes, apparently her mother was hurt by the fire. The smoke had taken her lungs. The girl tried to save her, but then the city guard showed up and she had to break off the spell. Ludlove's suspicion was now undeniably confirmed. He managed not to betray anything in his face, stroking his chin in a gesture of ponderous interest. Hmm. She doesn't exactly sound like a troublemaker, but all right. If it's all you have, I will go speak with her. That's not all, Ludlove, the mayor said. His small eyes looked at Ludlove with a sudden intensity. Near the girl, a corpse was found. You'll never guess who it was. Ludlove stood up and returned the mayor's gaze. Grundheim's beady eyes had a nervous, searching quality to them. It was your friend, Vathek. Again the witch hunter had to make an effort to keep his face neutral, but he succeeded. How tragic, sir. I know you won't miss him, Ludlove, but when witch hunters are being shot to death in our city, then... Shot, sir? Yes, Ludlove. Shot to death, Grundheim confirmed. Using a pistol with a silver bullet. You know, of the kind witch hunters tend to use from time to time. At these words, Ludlove's eyebrows raised in an expression that was probably closer to amusement than surprise. Killed with his own pistol, most likely, he speculated, or at least he attempted to sound like he was speculating. Perhaps... The mayor said, clearly unconvinced. The trouble is, he was holding his weapon when we found him. 
It had not been fired. Ludlow looked skeptical. You don't think it was the girl? Not according to her own testimony, for what it's worth. She spoke of a mysterious saviour. A man clad in shadows, wearing a hat. The emphasis on the final part of the description was undeniable. The witch hunter kept his eyes cold and unfazed. I see. Perhaps I should ask her some questions about this mysterious chap then, shouldn't I? Grundheim studied Ludlow again, very clearly trying to fathom what was going on in his mind. Perhaps you should, Ludlow. His tone said more than his words. Ludlow nodded curtly and started to make his way to the door. Ludlow? The witch hunter turned to face the mayor once more. Yes, sir? Don't expect too much of her. She's only a little white witch. I don't suspect she has any ties to evil cults. Was that pity Ludlow could discern in the mayor's vulture-like face? Concern for a plebeian? A gypsy, no less. In his heart, it made his appreciation for Grundheim grow. But once more, he did not betray it in his face. He never did near men like him. Appearances can deceive, sir. We will see. I will unearth her secrets and bring the truth to light. Grundheim nodded. The dungeons, or at least that part of them where female prisoners were held, were connected to the mayor's house by an old subterranean tunnel. Few people were aware of the strange origins of this connection, but its existence was no secret. Most citizens assumed that it had been dug to provide the mayor easy access to a personal harem. In reality, it had been genuine love, not superficial lust, that had moved Mayor Milovich to command the tunnel's construction three centuries ago. He had felt a true and deep love for a condemned witch, and while he had been able to keep her from the terrible fate of burning at the stake, he had also known he could not afford to release her. His solution had been this tunnel, which he had used to smuggle the woman into his house. When their love led to a child, it had become impossible to maintain the secret. The mayor had chosen for love, with his own death and the witch's as the final result. She had managed to give birth to her son before the end, though, and the child had been placed in an orphanage and one day disappeared. Whether the boy had fled or been killed was unknown. The whole story was a sharp reminder to those few who knew it. Those in power held their contempt for all magic users in higher regard than even the most powerful public official. Some of Milovich's successors had gladly made use of the tunnel as well, but their nightly escapades had on the whole been less romantic. No one suspected Mayor Grundheim of satisfying his sexual appetite by using female prisoners, however, nor male prisoners for that matter. According to some rumors, the man didn't have any desire for physical intimacy a disposition most found even more alienating and incomprehensible than any unconventional or exotic preferences. Ludlow followed the mayor down the steep, downward-leading tunnel that writhed its way through the earth's surface, lit every ten yards or so by a pair of torches. Despite the relative secrecy surrounding the tunnel, 
it was clearly well maintained and used regularly. The stones that constituted the tunnel were rough and irregularly sized, but nevertheless the tunnel as a whole was a clean, straightforward construction. When Ludlow and the mayor arrived at the dungeons, they were greeted by Griswold, the jailer, a bearded man who somehow had a kind and soft look to his face, despite layers of crude scars drawn through his facial hairs like trails in a forest, and deep furrows in his brow that made it almost look like he was carved out of some old and cracked piece of wood. The witch hunter surmised they were now about thirty yards on the ground. The walls were different here, made from large natural rock formations. Heavy wooden beams supported the area, giving it the appearance of a coal mine. It was quiet now. There were few female prisoners, a state of affairs that would no doubt have been different under the rule of some of the earlier mayors. Griswold, bring Ludlove to the girl. I'm heading back to my study. Yes, my lord. Griswold nodded. Ludlove said goodbye to the mayor and followed the jailer to the end of the hallway. Sighing laconically, Griswold produced his keyring. You won't learn much from her, I'm afraid. He didn't face the witch hunter. She don't speak much at all. Ludlove nodded. I suppose you like her. Griswold smiled, opening the door. Maybe she'll take a liking to you too then, eh? Who knows? It bordered on disrespect, but Ludlove liked Griswold, who was old enough he could get away with saying things like this. The surface of the cell was about eight square feet in size. Near the ceiling, a tiny barred window allowed a few pale rays of sunlight to shine in through a massive wall that was almost as thick as Ludlove was tall. On one end of the cell, there was a large, rough-hewn block of stone. It was the only place to sit down. Ludlove needed to adjust his eyes to the light before he even saw Samina. Her white dress was so dirty it had almost become unrecognizable. The girl was hunched in a corner of the cell, a heavy chain of black metal clasped to her right ankle. Black metal, the only matter capable of keeping a mage from using their abilities. It didn't stop magic, but it reacted to it with a disturbance that caused extreme pain to the magic user. It was a sad sight to see such a gruesome thing attached to an innocent young woman. Her dark hair hid her face, but Ludlove could feel the spite and fear emanating from her. He looked Griswold in the eye long enough for the guard to understand he wanted to be alone with her. With a polite nod and was that a smile, the jailer closed the door behind him. In the moment of silence that followed, a controlled but tense energy seemed to vibrate through the cell. Magic. Samina? Ludlov spoke with uncharacteristic softness, taking a step towards her. The leather of his boots creaked and made him sound menacing and official. Not a very good start. She remained where she was, breathing quickly like a hurt and cornered animal. Samina, I am not your enemy. Not my enemy? 
she raised her head and fearlessly looked the witch hunter in the eye. Black soot and the streaks made through it by past tears could not hide the beauty of her face and only emphasized the intense blue of her eyes. Perhaps it was simply the way what little sunlight there was reflected her gaze, but it almost seemed like her irises were luminous themselves. The expression in those sapphires was far from sweet, though. She looked at Ludlove with reluctantly contained swirling rage. Not my enemy. Strange choice of words for a man dressed like a witch hunter. Ludlove took a deep breath, but remained motionless. I am a witch hunter. And I am a witch, so don't tell me you are not my enemy. Ludlove couldn't help but smile. He wasn't used to being talked to so disrespectfully by his inferiors. Surely old Griswold dared to make a subtle jibe in good fun now and then, but a prisoner? A starved girl in the dungeons? It was refreshing somehow. I speak the truth, Samina. Quiet. Ludlow started pacing up and down the cell. You know, you and I do have something in common. We are both misunderstood human beings. The look on her face was downright condescending. It's hard to misunderstand people who have women burned at the stake simply for the crime of trying to help people. First of all, Samina, I want you to know that I will not lead you to the pyre. In fact, I will do all that I can to keep you from such a fate. She scoffed. And secondly, if I had been there, I would not have had your mother die. She nodded in mock appreciation. So what is this supposed to be? Some trick to gain my confidence? To get me to tell you whatever you need to know? Give up, witch hunter. Even if I had anything to say, which I don't, I certainly wouldn't give it away to the likes of you. It was true that Ludlow wanted to gain her confidence and get information from her, but he had also meant what he had said. He had no intention to send an innocent girl into death and he would never have interrupted her magic while she had been trying to heal her mother. But how could he ever convince her of that? He sat down on the stone, thought to himself for a bit, and then decided to approach Samina anew. My name is Ludlov. How good for you, Ludlov. He bowed his head and groaned. This girl was frustrating. But then again... He could not deny her fearless resistance was much more impressive than he had expected. If she had been a black witch or a cult member, he would have handled her harshly, threatening her with painful punishments without a hint of remorse. But everything he had seen of Samina indicated she was an entirely different sort of magician. A child of nature. He would never hurt her until she proved to be anything other than that. You don't know why I am a witch hunter, do you, Samina? I don't care. You don't know why I am a witch. Oh, I believe I do, actually. Ludlove removed his hat to make himself more visible. His face had probably been difficult to see in this dark place, and there was certainly no need to appear sinister to her. You are only a witch because your mother was a witch, and she taught you in the ways of the natural magic of the world. A magic of unity, 
of harmony with the forces of the earth, the skies and the waters. A magic of healing and taking care of those you love. Yes, I have known witches like you before, Samina. He smiled at her warmly. To me, you aren't a witch. You are a, a child of nature. As harmful to the well-being of this city as, as the birds are to the sky or the animals are to the woods. He spoke lightly, as if what he had said was commonly known truth rather than a highly controversial viewpoint that most would even call blasphemous. Samina looked at him with surprise at first, but then distrust crept in once more. And what are you then? Ludlove had to think about this for a bit until he suddenly found himself surprised and charmed. Effortlessly, she had jerked him out of his comfortable position of interrogator and taken on that role herself. And he hadn't even noticed it at first. She deserved an answer. Straightening his back, he said, I am a man. Just a man, in essence. But in the eyes of the world, I am also a symbol of the complete eradication of magic. He smiled again. In the eyes of the world. He repeated that emphatically. In reality, a symbol is just a symbol, and it is not who I am. To his surprise, Samina shook her head even more emphatically. No, that's far too easy. You chose to be that symbol, and so it is who you are. Ludlov put his hat on the stone and rose. Yes, I chose for it. But why, do you think? I only chose for it because someone has to do the dirty work. Because the order of the witch hunters, with its swift and merciless application of the laws, is the only thing truly feared by magicians. And I'm afraid that there are very different magicians out there, Samina. There are those who deserve death. But... He stopped speaking all of a sudden, realizing in shock how utterly open he had been to her. Was this safe? But what? There was a half-interested impatience in Samina's tone. A strange feeling came to Ludlove when his eyes met hers. However distrusting and angry she was, a sense of complete confidence came over him, clothing him in a warm, safe blanket of trust. Trust and and more. Destiny, perhaps? Did this feeling signify the start of some great and important unfolding of events in which she was to play a major part? He felt no fear as he told this strange girl the simple truth, even though he knew next to nothing about her. Was she using her magic to gain his trust? No, he decided. Her rejection of his kindness was sincere, and the magic he had sensed when he had entered the room and which was still palpable was not invasive to his mind. He knew that, because he had experienced that sort of magic many times before. Where the strange sensation actually came from, he didn't know, but he trusted it. I will confide in you, Samina. I will tell you what I don't tell anyone. He avoided her gaze as he continued. I am not a pleasant man by far. I have 
persecuted, killed, and even, much as it grieves me, tortured. But never have I done any such thing to a truly innocent person like you. Do not mistake me for some of my colleagues. I am not a man who will hurt others for being something that I am not, or believing something that I do not, even if the order I belong to is one that does follow such a creed. He moved towards the shaft of sunlight. I am only looking for the true evil in the world. Men it exists. Those who snatch infants from their cradles, who drink blood and destroy lives, they are truly out there, and they are the ones who should fear me. It is only dark magic that I hunt down and destroy. Peaceful, light magic like yours is my ally. As he spoke those last words, he took off his glove and raised his hand into the pale sunlight, and on his finger glistened the ring he always wore. A ring with a smooth red stone set in it, a magical stone. The good magic is my secret ally and my quiet friend. He stepped into the ray of light, literally revealing himself to her. It was a theatrical gesture, but Ludlov hoped that the ring and the sincere look on his face would convince Amina that he truly was different from the shrill witch-haters she had encountered before. <laughs> if that is true, then why did you join those horrible witch-hunter bigots who make no such distinction? The answer to that was simple. Because the witch-hunter order however prejudiced, is all that stands between civilization and utter darkness. The god is afraid of supernatural evil and unequipped to handle it. The witch hunters are the only ones who even have the courage to face those forces. He noticed her gaze going to his ring again. <laughs> and witch hunters aren't corrupt? They are over-eager often willfully ignorant. They can be extremist and hateful, and some, although they are few, are corrupt. But still, the witch hunters are the only ones who even make an effort. The only ones who can. He moved out of the sunlight towards Samina. Besides, if I speak the truth and respect the children of nature, such as yourself, is it not good that there are still people like myself amongst the ranks of the Lady Hoskiv's men? Granted. But still you stand for an ideal that is evil, Ludlov. You wear its uniform. Those are my ways, Samina. I nestle inside the Order like a worm inside an apple. And so I intend to reach the Black Sickle. When he mentioned that name, Samina swallowed and Ludlov noticed it. Good. There was a lead here. He was sure of it. Why do you need me? Ludlov clasped his hands, one bare and one still gloved. Well... He said that more loudly than he intended. You are the only magic user I can speak to at the time. And I want to know whether you know anything about the Black Sickles, Amina. She frowned and bit her lip. He could not read her expression. Is this some kind of cruel joke? He studied her face. 
Her eyes were hurt, distrustful and frightened, but they were not cynical. Some hint of hope lingered there, hope for survival. And he knew that he was the only source of that hope. I won't tell you anything, witch hunter. Hope mixed with fear. He would have to use both emotions if he was to gain anything from her. He didn't like playing this game, but he had done it successfully before. Only by playing on her fears as well as her hopes would he be able to learn anything from her. Very well, Samina. If you do indeed know anything about the Black Sickle and you refuse to tell me, I can only draw one conclusion from that. She looked at him questioningly. Good. You are protecting them. Then he turned to leave the cell. I know nothing! His voice carried through the coldness of the stone room when he opened the cell door. You do, Samina. I know you do. He held open the door, showing how easily he could just let her go. I have patience, but there are limits, both to the time I have and to the trust I can give you. With these words, he left the room and closed the cell door behind her. Has she spoken yet? Grundheim handed his quill over to Ludlov in order to sign the document that officially confirmed Samina's status as an informant in his inquest. Ludlov studied the fine details of the environment, reading the titles on some of the books in Grundheim's bookcases. Rights of succession according to the laws of Urba Classica. Strategies of oration. The complete volume of social entertainment. He knew that the casual way in which he delayed responding to the question irked the mayor. Not yet. He took the quill. But I'm not worried about it. After he had signed the document, he added, Those small heretic rebels are all the same. They think they have willpower. The witch-hunter smiled and handed the document with the quill over to the mayor. I give her a day, and then she breaks. The mayor shook his head in disbelief. Witch-hunters, you're all too confident if you ask me. One day that confidence might be the downfall of your order, Ludlove. If that is to be the end. Ludlove had a laconic look on his face. Is there anything else you require of me, sir? I want to tell you that you need not worry about bearing the news of Ademir's demise. As it happens, I'm meeting Grand General Hoskiv today. Allow me to tell her of this tragedy. Ludlov had to recognize this as a sincere gesture from the mayor, and he nodded gratefully. Even though he had often had cynical thoughts about the mayor's motivations... There were times he had to respect the man's goodwill. Thank you, sir. Adomir was like a father to me. A sad smile came to the mayor's vulture-like features. The Grand General knows that, Ludlove. Staring into the candle, Ludlove noticed a drop 
that had come loose from the puddle of molten wax surrounding the wick. He saw it escape, now rolling down the candle like a tear. He watched in fascination as the drop coagulated in a vein-like shape and attached itself to the copper candle holder. The sight reaffirmed Ludlow's realization that this candle, even if it was in the afterlife, melted like any other candle, that the wick wasn't of infinite length and that the flame would not last forever. The candle's light would only remain for as long as Ludlow's tail would last, and then a decision would be made. A decision with eternal consequences. I returned to my room in a melancholy mood. There was no one I wanted to talk to, and so I stayed awake all through the night, studying my own notes on the black sickle, still nothing more than a barrage of questions and largely ineffectual details. Seven years of research, seven years of bitter effort, Seven years of blood, sweat, and tears. Death remained silent. The thought of blood brought me to look at my sketches of the tattoos I had seen on the cult members. A sickle with a drop of blood hanging precariously from the blade. There was something about that drop. The symbol of the drop was a recurring theme. You did know what the drop referred to, didn't you, Ludloff? Of course I did. The black sickle was the weapon used by the devil to kill the maiden, and the drop on its blade was no doubt her blood. But why was this drop pictured in the cult's symbolism again and again? Ludloff narrowed his eyes, looking at death with intense questioning. I knew deep in my heart that this cult was not only interested in the devil and his weapon, but they cared at least as much about the blood of the maiden. This realization made me uneasy. The old feeling returned, like a voice somewhere deep in the cellars of my soul, screaming at me, trying to get my attention, while some invisible force silenced it. Every time I wondered about the black sickle's intentions, it resurfaced. A muffled cry, the cry of some incarcerated, doomed thing, desperately needing to be heard. The pristine light of the peaceful candle brought Ludlow back to that dark evening. He could see himself behind his heavy oaken writing desk, snapping his notebook closed. The small gust of wind made the candlelight dance fearfully. Ludlow rose from his desk and turned to the large velvet curtain framed window. Looking out, the pointy roofs of the houses lay arrayed in front of him with the chaotic yet beautiful patterns of a natural formation. Here and there, small streets and narrow alleyways could be seen between the houses, like the hidden pathways a worm might make inside an apple. The sky was dark, new moon. Ghostly and ephemeral, the tiny windows at the tops of the seven peaks surrounding the cathedral shone down their orange lights on the city. Silent guardians, 
standing watch far above the heads of the inhabitants of Seven Peaks. Every religious soul in the city had fantasized about the privilege of visiting those tower chambers and witnessing the stones from up close. They were so nearby and yet far too unattainable for ordinary beings. The tower chambers were called the Sanctissima of Seven Peaks, the holiest of the holy, for a reason. Only cardinals were allowed to go there. Ludlov's imagination took another turn. Why the image presented itself to him he didn't know, but with his mind's eye he could see a dark cloud taking the shape of a long-fingered claw that in a fluent motion proceeded to pick the stone out of one of the towers, holding the radiant thing between its thumb and forefinger like a diver who had found a pearl, or like the claw that had gripped Troth the invader at the fall of Invenemborg. He smiled at himself. Such imaginings were possibly blasphemous, so he shook them off and turned away from the window. Perhaps it was time to sleep, but he dreaded going back to his bedroom. Of course it was of superior quality, and its opulent canopy bed was wide and soft, but it was difficult to face its emptiness, even now, seven years later. There were long periods, usually months on end, when he would simply go to sleep without thinking about it. But every once in a while he would still find himself entering the bedroom and imagining Maria there, peacefully asleep. And on such nights, when he led himself down between the cold sheets, he would have to think back to a time when those sheets would have been warmed by her body, and he would have held her, and they would have made love or simply found comfort in each other's presence, her head resting on his chest, falling asleep to the sound of his heartbeat. Tonight was such a night, Troubled though he was, eventually Ludlov did fall asleep. It was not a dreamless sleep. He saw Adomir, appearing much as Ludlov had known him in life, a long face with a sharp, clean-shaven chin, two huge black eyebrows cleaving furrows into his forehead, converging above a long, aristocratic nose. But in those dark eyes, Ludlov saw a dancing flame, not in the natural color of fire, but in the red of fresh blood. Fierce embers whirled from out of that flame and enveloped Ludlov. Adomir looked disapproving, accusing even, as if Ludlov had been the one who had murdered him. He found he could not face those eyes any longer, and his dream body returned to the cold, inky darkness wherein the flying embers disappeared. Desperate and regretful for allowing Adomir to die, he staggered into the darkness and found Maria, white and immobile, like the marble statues of Urba Classica, her eyes closed. He wanted to touch her face, but feared it, dreaded it, knowing that her skin would be cold and hard and dead. And still he drew nearer about to embrace her, when suddenly he saw a drop of bright crimson splash down on her perfect forehead and trickling down, leaving a trail of red. The drop was soon followed by another, and another, and another, until it started to rain. 
Blood rained down on Maria and on himself, brightly red, alarmingly fresh blood. His eyes opened, and he felt a cold jitter moving through his body. He was lying on his side, facing the pristine empty pillow where once her head had been. His mouth was dry, and the hairs on his skin were upright all over his body. It had been a shocking nightmare, and yet, strangely, he felt gratitude for it. At least, he had seen her face, and it had seemed real to him. He knew that in reality, that was taken from him. He closed his eyes again, vaguely hoping that Maria's face would reappear as clearly as it had in his dream. Memories came flooding in, beautiful memories, much more pleasant than the vision of her pale dead body. Her smile, her embrace, her chattering enthusiasm, and her mysterious silences. However, here outside the world of dreams, a cold and harsh rationality told him that these memories were gone, now a stagnant pool, never to be replenished. The realization was poisonous to the solace he could find in those memories. What he would give to feel her long, soft hair on his face once more, to take in the smell of her perfume. In his heart, nothing of Maria faded. Not her fragile beauty, not her warm care and her fiery courage, but also not her stubbornness, her unpredictable mood swings, her naivety the full and complete Maria, in all that she was, her strengths and her weaknesses, lived on within him. It might have been a double-sided gift, but nonetheless he was grateful to the goddess for the clarity of his memories of her, even though he knew that the hurt would never subside as long as those memories remained the way they were. So be it, he thought, then he would live with the pain. Elsewhere in the city, Samina woke up from an equally troubled sleep. She was terribly cold. It had probably been her own shivering that had woken her. It was pitch dark. When her eyes had adjusted, she could only just make out five consecutive rectangles where the barred window of her cell allowed what little light there was from the outside world. It was too dark to see anything else, and so she found her gaze drawn to the window. Her thoughts wandered again, going back to her mother. She had told herself to stop thinking about what had happened, but it seemed impossible to obey her own intentions. They had both known of her mother's impending death, but the way it had happened. She had gone over a hundred different scenarios, wondering if any of them would have been better, but they all ended the same way. She knew what her mother would say now. Survive, Samina. 
Whatever else you think you must do, first be alive to do it. Samina could practically hear her mother's voice saying those words. She had said the same thing to Sigurd when he had left to join the Black Sickle. Stay alive, Sigurd. Now Samina found herself beseeching her brother from afar, using her mother's words. Stay alive. Whatever else you think you must do, Sigurd, just stay alive. Sigurd had never answered. She wondered if he could. He had been quite powerful, showing aptitude for a multitude of magical abilities, but not this. How different things might have been if he had been able to talk to her from time to time. She would not have to live in constant worry then. Oh well, she would probably not have to live much longer anyway. No, not those thoughts. They were not allowed. Her mother wouldn't have it. She had to stay alive. What of this witch hunter then? Samina had been disgusted with him the moment he had entered her cell earlier that day. With his confident stride and his face hidden beneath that tall, shadowy hat. She had expected him to bully her into submission until she would reveal what he needed. Granted, he hadn't done that. She had to admit that, so far at least, he did indeed seem to be different. But he was still a witch hunter. It could all be an act. Of course, she had heard stories of this Ludlov the Pure before. They had mostly painted him as a grim but heroic figure, more of a slayer of demons than a magic-hating bigot. Still, she had seen enough of witch hunters to know what they were like. To the guards, the merchants, and the nobility, this Ludlov was a hero. The one who could not be swayed by diabolical tricks. The one who could resist mind control. The one who knew the enemy better than all the others. The one who got real results. But he was still a witch hunter. Still a member of them. He was probably just a highly trained spy and assassin who always knew precisely who he was talking to and how to deal with them to get what he needed. That was probably all there really was to him, and not a hint of the genuine care and humanity he had tried to present. No witch hunter would ever care about the life of a witch, would they? Adomir's burial was held in the cathedral, insofar as it could be called a burial. The body was never really retrieved amidst the ashes of the burned house. No one had told Ludlov what was actually in the coffin, but he presumed only some personal effects. The coffin was beautiful, though, standing in the middle of the mighty church. There were only witch hunters, nobles and clerics present at the funeral. It was a standing service, as was the custom in the case of a particularly important person's passing. Two long rows flanked the coffin. One row consisted of the nobles and nearest to the coffin, the witch hunters. Forty men and ten women, all wearing long mourning capes over their uniforms and wearing their hats, 
as was expected in the cathedral out of deference to the goddess. On the other side, there were the clerics, the sisters of repentance, behind their black veils, appeared like an army of ghosts. They were seldom seen in public, and on the rare occasions that they were, their faces were always hidden behind those veils so that not even their eyes could be seen. All of them came from another background. Some had been whores, while others had been merchants' wives, or even nobility. But they all had one thing in common. In a past life, they had been sinners. Now, they had given themselves over to a life of nameless humility, chastity, and obedience. It was said that the Sisters of Repentance were the guardians of a great secret, one that would only be revealed at the end of time. This was why the Church looked at them with both awe and suspicion. There were many who doubted the prophecy, but those who did still betrayed a hint of nervousness and insecurity when they said so. There was simply something about the sisters that made it seem like they knew things others did not. The brothers of Wellhelm, standing next to the sisters, were a much more common view in Seven Peaks. Anyone could see them walking down the streets, but nobody ever met their gaze. Their sacrifice followed the legendary Wellhelm the White, who had vowed to live life without the light of the sun. Young monks of this order burned shut their own eyes when they entered. There had been some who had claimed that without their eyes, they had gained much clearer sight afterwards, and they had meant it literally. Such voices were now silenced in these magic-free times, but anyone who had ever met the brothers of Wellhelm had to be in awe of the remarkable independence they displayed despite their blindness. Here at the funeral they stood in solemn silence, still clad in white as always, but wearing black blindfolds instead of white ones. Before the start of the funeral, Ludlov had made a comment to Lady Hoskiv about the frightening amount of eyeless human figures. It seems ungrateful to deform or hide one's own face in the name of the goddess. I find it hard to believe that she who gave us the maiden would appreciate it if we hid or burned away that which she gave to us so that we could admire her creation. Lady Hoskiv, a middle-aged, dignified, statuesque woman, as tall as Ludlov, had simply raised her thin eyebrows. This creation wasn't her only gift to us, Ludlov. Sacrifice was another, and they want to honor that sacrifice. The two rows were headed by Cardinal Falkenberg, barely able to stand at his high age, and Mayor Grundheim, who stood beside him and supported the Cardinal. It wouldn't be long now before this ceremony would be held again for Falkenberg. Everyone could see the man's failing health, what was not clear in the slightest was who would succeed him. There were rumors that the cardinal had deliberately refrained from appointing a successor because he believed the goddess had chosen him as Seven Peaks' last cardinal. Whether he had actually said this remained unconfirmed, but in some circles, particularly among the nobility, the fear had started to grow that the last days of Seven Peaks might be nigh. Perhaps it was true that the holy stones were almost empty. After the service, Lady Hoskiv invited Ludlov to a private conversation. 
As the other guests started to return to their daily activities, the Grand General and the Witch Hunter walked the pillared halls of the cathedral, talking in soft voices. The service for Varthik will be held a week from now. The lady took an appraising look at Ludlove from beneath her shadowy hat and added, I expect you to be present, Ludlove. Of course, lady. I know my responsibilities. Good. And try not to show your obvious contempt for the man too much. Ludlove raised his eyebrows. I assume the members of the Inquisitio Internis have spoken to you? The Grand General confirmed this by her silence on the subject. It is a very realistic possibility that it was a witch hunter who killed Farthek. That being the case, you are a plausible suspect, Ludlov. Your opinion of Varthek was quite well known, even outside the Order. Oh, perhaps I should have simply agreed to disagree then, and let him slaughter innocent bystanders by the droves. The lady shook her head. Varthek was a vapid, bloodthirsty cur, and a disgrace to our Order. But the last thing we need is a scandal. Do you suspect me, lady? Ludlove dared to ask the question, but he felt uneasy about it. Lady Hoskiv's thin, stern face seemed to be hewn out of hard stone as she prepared her answer. At last, she said, Ludlove of Seven Peaks, you are the most thoughtful, the most courageous, and frankly the most effective of all witch hunters. But your condescending attitude towards opposing views is as legendary as your success. Ludlove was quite pleased with this summary of his career, and Lady Hoskiv noticed it. Be careful, friend. Even my hand cannot keep protecting you. Ludlove couldn't wipe the smugness from his face. I would have it no other way, lady. Earnestness drove away the playful look in his eyes. Unconvinced, his superior changed the topic of conversation. There's another matter, Ludlov. The remembrance feast in honor of Adamir. I presume you're willing to hold a brief speech tonight? Ludlov stifled a groan, bit his lip and reluctantly agreed. He would be more than willing to honor Adamir's memory, but he wished there was a less embarrassing way to do it. Oh well, he thought... His mentor would appreciate the sacrifice. Good. How is your inquest into Adamir's demise going? He pondered the question for a bit, uncertain how much he was willing to give away. I have an informant, maybe. He sounded somewhat resigned, but Lady Hoskiv seemed pleased nonetheless. What kind of informant, Ludlov? The girl who was found near Varthek's corpse. In a way, it was to Ludlov's advantage now that he had shot Varthek. The true reasons for his conversations with Semina would only be met with disapproval from the Grand General, who would undoubtedly repeat what he had heard far too often before, that his obsessive need to unmask the Black Sickle was an obstacle to his other work, even though the cult's role in this particular case was undeniable. Now it seemed as if he was connecting Varthek's murder to Adomir's, which bought him the time he needed to interrogate Semina thoroughly without having to report to Lady Hoskiv. However, the Grand General surprised him because she still objected, even though her concerns went in a completely different direction. That girl, Ludlov, she is no more than a herb dealer, a Sintra child. 
Her magic is concerned with curing warts and predicting rain, not dealing with bloodthirsty cultists. Why are you wasting your energy on her? Ludlow found Lady Hoskiv's answer strangely liberating. Perhaps it was no longer necessary for him to downplay his lust for revenge on the Black Sickle. Perhaps his lady had at last realized how important this enemy truly was. Of course, it was more likely that she was merely convinced that there was a greater danger lurking behind Adomir's death, which had nothing to do with a little white witch like Semina. That in itself did not mean that she believed the Black Sickle had anything to do with it. In any case, he still needed a good explanation to convince Lady Hoskiv of Semina's importance as an informant. Luckily, he was used to thinking on his feet. She was present in the city during the night of the fire, and she was practicing magic. The Grand General's eyes made it very clear that Ludlow had better come up with a very good third reason. And I've seen something in her eyes. The Grand General raised her eyebrows, giving her thin face a disdainful quality. Oh, and what might that be? The deep blue sea? Fear. She's afraid, lady. But not of me, nor even of the Order. She fears not for her own life, but for another. She's protecting someone, lady. And I want to know who and why. It was true. He really did suspect this. That did not mean he needed to mention he felt sympathetic to her, of course. The skeptical look on the lady's face faded, fortunately. She knew well enough when it came to his profession, Ludlow's instincts were like a wolf's. Very well, Ludlow. I suggest you find out whether you are right as quickly as possible. I don't want to lose any time on this girl. Don't let the trail grow cold. I assure you, lady, no one is more eager to find and punish these monsters than I am. I know, Lilof, but there are those who feel that the investigation of Adam's death is more of a matter for the Inquisitio Internis. Ludlow shook his head. That Gorivosk is just an overeager whelp. Besides, he's already too busy with the Vathek case. All of that is true, but at least he does realize that there are other evils in this world than the Black Sickle. Ludlow felt a sting of frustration and his eyes narrowed. Did she still not see? Of course it was the Black Sickle. He quickly tried to conceal his anger, but he knew she had seen what was going on in his mind and that his vexed expression confirmed that she had hit a tender spot. None of those witch hunters knew Adomir the way I knew him, lady. Let me investigate his death. That is all I desire. What you desire is of no consequence, Ludlow. We need results. Give me those and I promise you that the investigation will remain in your hands. If you remain focused on a dead end, I will have to hand the case over to Gorliwosk. That is the least I can do for Adamir. So that was this week's episode of Witch Hunter. We'll be back next Thursday with the adventures of Ludlow and Samina.
If you want to find out more about Witch Hunter, you can find us at audio-epics.com and we also have a Facebook page, the Audio Epics Facebook page. Have a great week, everyone! <laughs>